I'm Dr. Josie Oje, and this is Gikapikskwewin on why our cultural values are so important to Indigenous peoples involved in research with Indigenous peoples. Carolyn Green, the former chair of the Research Ethics Board and associate professor of criminology in the Faculty of Arts and Science at Athabasca University. With us is Dr. Nisha Nath, assistant professor in equity studies in the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at Athabasca University. I'm bringing them together today. Um, One of the first things that I wanted to introduce you to was this article that we wrote a while back, um, and it's still going through the publishing process. The article was entitled, Wisdom Seeking Together, uh, Circling Around Research Ethics. It was a remarkable process, and um, today we're here to reflect on the uh, two-day hybrid event um, that happened in June uh, 2022. One of the questions that I wanted to ask is, what was offered and said at the event that resonated with you? And um, whoever would like to respond to that first, go ahead. I will uh, happily jump in. It's uh, Carolyn. So I think the first thing, there were so many incredible contributions made by uh, the attendees at the event. Um, The dialogue, um, the discussions, everything was just invaluable to me. Narrowing it down was very difficult in terms of sort of what resonated most, but I did identify something that was, I think, very critical for me personally, uh, and it ties into the process of undergoing we underwent in terms of planning the event uh, and decisions around how that how the event would would work and sort of um, what happened at the event. So I will begin with one of the portions of the event. We we had a number of breakout sessions, and one of those breakout sessions was specifically for Indigenous participants to come together in a safe space to uh, engage in dialogue. And I I remember when this was this idea was brought forth by Nisha and, and Myra, I believe, quite some time before the event took place, and. And I remember having a sort of an uncomfortable feeling about this idea of, of having a separate space. And, and it sort of, I had to sit with why it, that made me uncomfortable. And initially in my mind, I sort of thought, well, if we're to be engaging in dialogue, how is, you know, by isolating, we're not really engaging in that dialogue. And so what I then had to do and, and what I have learned to do much more frequently uh, since uh, beginning my work with Unisha and Josie is to reflect on my positionality and why, you know, why is it that I felt like that dialogue wasn't going to be able to take place when in fact, probably the most important dialogue of this entire event took place in that particular breakout session. So, you know, I sat with that um, and hearing the appreciation and um, the recognition from the from attendees about how meaningful and how important 
that particular session was for them to have that safe space, to have a space where, you know, the eyes of the colonizers are not there. And and as as a white woman, as a colonizer, I I I really I got it. And I realized, you know, I can appreciate the need to have a space where I can speak freely and feel safe. And so so I, I just I really I, all of that really resonated with me. I, I learned a lot. Um, and I realized that my tendency to kind of want to go, go, do, do isn't being an ally means stepping up, but also stepping back. And I think that's, if that makes sense, that's, that was sort of a really important moment for me personally. That really makes a lot of sense. And I just wanted to touch on on something here. I almost forgot about that particular part. But what you're saying, what you're saying, and what what you're reminding me of, resonates with actually what a lot of the presenters said at the event, a lot of the presenters acknowledged or felt that there was like, systemic racism at a more subtle form that still exists and affects like indigenous research and, and conducting um, indigenous research methodology. So for people to have that space to talk is really important. And to have those um, critical conversations um, is is very important. And I think even Margaret Kovac refers to um, the, the significance of, of having um, these these types of these types of conversations. So thank you for that. And um, Nisha, I was just wondering what was offered and said at the event that resonated with you, or did you want to comment on on what uh, Carolyn said? Yeah, thank you for that, Carolyn and Josie. Um, because when you first posed the question, Josie, I was thinking, oh, well, before I speak about what resonated with me, I need to, you know, share how I'm coming into this conversation or the lineages that I'm bringing into this conversation, who I'm bringing into this conversation. So I identify as a woman of color and then also as a South Asian settler of color. And my family immigrated here in in 1967. My parents came here actually in 1968. Um, and they come from quite diverse social locations in India. Um, and I and I and I raise that because I think that that shapes kind of how I enter into these conversations and then also what you're bringing forward, Carolyn, too, in that it shapes um, my accountabilities in these conversations as well. And of course, there's more to say here, right? I am a daughter, I am a sister, I'm a mother of two, um, I'm a political scientist, I'm, I'm an untenured faculty member, a cis woman, I own property. All of those things are shaping um, kind of what I brought into the symposium, but also what resonated with me, um, and then how I step into those accountabilities, uh, particularly given that we are kind of on Indigenous lands within existing Indigenous sovereignties, and then also in a settler colonial context in which I'm I'm implicated. So I think this relates to what resonated with me in that all of the, the presenters at the symposium were inviting such an expansive notion of ethics, right? 
And this Western orientation of ethics is so deeply rooted in this very temporally bound notion of ethics, right? It, you, you start the ethics process here and you end it here and, and that's it. But of course, we know from the symposium that the presenters were absolutely um, troubling that very rigid notion of, of ethics. So, you know, I think about, for example, Dr. Erica Nigana um, Widjewin. Nigana Goijin. Yeah. Uh, her, her intervention where she is talking about the practice of fishing as being not just a, an ethical practice, but also a practice of research. And so, so to me, you know, it, this in some ways resonated with me in terms of why I am always locating myself in any kind of academic or scholarly conversation I have, because I feel like, you know, where, where our research begins is beyond just, you know, what we, what we type on a keyboard or what we witness on a screen or what we submit to a grant application, but it begins kind of in our social location, in our positionality, in our kinship networks, um, in the lineages that we bring. So that, that really expansive notion of research ethics that has a very long temporality really, really resonated with me. But it's also something that I, you know, quite frankly, as someone trained within the Western Academy, it's something that I'm also aspiring to think more methodically about and then also be more committed to in my research, um, especially given the pressures that we feel in our research and that the pressures that we are always at risk of reproducing um, in our research as well. Yes, and um, thank you, Nisha, for reminding us, you know, with your self-location and who you are. I mean, when I recall, like, Carolyn describing herself as a, a white settler woman when we were writing the paper, that really, that began really like a process of, of, naming, of naming for me. And um, I was moved very deeply by that. I was touched. Like, I was, wow, we're really going to talk about you know, privilege, we're going to talk about, you know, systemic racism, we're going to talk about the need, how um, settler colonialism affects Indigenous research. And with what you're also doing, Nisha, in, in self-locating, is also identifying your, ancest your ancestors, where you come from, the places where you're working at. And these are the same things, like we had so many people, um, Inuk people, Maori people, Australian Aboriginal people, uh, people from the Mi'kmaq, the Anishinaabe, all peoples acknowledging their relationship to place and acknowledging their ancestors, which I found was like so profound. And I probably have missed like some of the, the tribal affiliations that, that they have. But what you speak to also with regards to like Erica Naganagwejin's presentation, you know, is this idea that there's no research without relationships. And, um, you know, she identified a couple of, of examples of um, ethical principles to protect knowledge and um, sans people. She was referring to sans people and how they have a medicine in Africa for famine. 
Um, but however, uh, researchers wanted to use this medicine for obesity. And now the SANS people have their own codes um, so because they don't want to be exploited in Africa. And she also talked about um, Caribbean indigenous communities where she's from, how they're also self-determining peoples. And um, they've talked about how harm has happened without their researchers have caused harm without their intention. So sovereignty to them is embedded in the ethics of re refusal. And I found like after spending like how many months away from the event, um, it's been a number of months since we've uh, met together. But even when we met together, it was like so much information was happening. But thank goodness, like we were recording this and that we had some time to kind of like listen to it. But it's also been some time since we've had those conversations. And um, one of the recommendations that I would have like from this is that for these um, two day hybrid events, maybe even just to have it like over like half days, maybe four half days, because you do get a lot of information. And it seems like after lunch um, and coming back to it, maybe we lose people. I don't know. But I think that uh, that was one of the things that, you know, maybe to, to learn from. So uh, I just wanted to add, is there anything else that you'd like to speak about? Like as you're as we're reflecting on this um, on the first question, which is what resonates with you? Is there anything more, anything else? I'll say one more thing, actually, if, if that's okay. Um, you know, it just, Josie, as you were reflecting on also what we might have done differently or could do differently, um, it also reminded me of the other thing that really resonated with me. And it's something that I think is a, a structural tension within the academy and then especially vis-a-vis um, you know, Indigenous people doing research in their communities or with other Indigenous people, this notion of slowing research, right? So if research, if you can't have research without relationality, and relationality requires that time and intention um, and that slow building, um, it, it does it does raise some really profound questions for all of us in terms of how we, again, introduce that kind of temporality where we're thinking about, about even the timelines of our grants or how we think about if we're sitting on research ethics boards for students or faculty, you know, how is how are our assumptions about the time at which research should take place for closing? Um, some of the, the kinds of research that we would want to be cultivating and fostering within the academy, whether that be Indigenous researchers or researchers who are non-Indigenous as well. So I think that was something quite powerful. And I think it speaks to a lot of the strength of our presenters in that they have been insistent in taking that time. And we see examples, you know, a number of presenters shared examples where their research had to take quite a lot of time where they had to wait for a very long time to get consent, to get people to listen to, um, you know, or to, to review their transcripts or listen to something before that research came out. So um, that also really resonated with me, but again, raises some serious questions I have around, around what we do to disrupt those temporalities of research as well. 
For sure. Um, and in fact, one of the uh, students on the afternoon panel on day two, Nicole, was talking also about, um, and who's also a white settler, was also talking about those timelines and consent. And, and of course, like looking at how to do research, like in a good way. And, ex and, and exactly the same thing that you're saying, Anisha, that the academy expects to publish, um, but relevant work with some with communities sometimes needs to be shared with the community first, and and you, there are pressures like on how research should be done, and that research should be done in a culturally safe way, but we are having to follow the REB processes that have often like focused on following the rules. Um, using the language of the Western institution. And by following the language of the Western institution, we are, you know, perpetuating colonialism and how that functions today. today. So, um, you know, even as we, um, you know, talk about honorariums as well, too, um, there was a lot of conversation. Well, there were some conversations about honorariums, and I think our... Um, our AVPR from Athabasca University commented like on, on honorariums as well and the importance of reciprocity, which also brings me to um, this idea of parallel pathways and really trying to understand like what that actually would mean. Um, on one hand, you know, are we... Um, are we, are we, like as Sharon Loonskin had described that there were like two sides of a, of a river and, and this parallel pathways idea to her in her mind, and Sharon is a community member when she was listening and thinking about this, was that, okay, so we have two sides of a river here, but are, is there any intersection? Like, how are we going to do this? And is this possible to do this? Do we need a bridge? Do we need a canoe? And then Lorraine, um, also uh, talking later on to the panel uh, that included Lisa Burke-Bearskin and Cora Weber-Pilwax and um, Melody Mortonino-Maya and a couple of other people that that maybe we need to build our own bridge. If we're, we're not able to overcome the bureaucracy of trying to have our ethics approved by the Western institution, maybe we need to take that time to develop our own. And so then we come back to this idea of, should we just continue working within together or should we work on this idea of parallel pathways and have we done enough to define it is what I'm kind of wondering and what I'm left taking away from it. At Athabasca University, um, you know, Melissa, uh, Jay, and myself have been meeting with the Research Ethics Board um, for about a year on a quarterly basis. And we're establishing like those relationships with the REB members. And obviously, like working with Carolyn, there is, um, who's the former chair of the Research Ethics Board, like we've established a relationship where we can have these um we can speak truthfully and be constructive, like with um, if there's any kind of critical thoughts so that we can move forward and nudge things um, towards something that 
that can work. And right now, like Melissa and I are, you know, talking about the tri-council policy guidelines and um, we've, we've gone through that. And those were developed by like the CIHR, SHRC and NSERC. And, but they kind of left a like interpretation up to like indigenous communities of what that actually looks looks like. And that's why um, I think we uh, move towards having this event to find out if parallel pathways would actually would actually work. So I just wanted to bring in the conversation that um, Melissa uh, had and uh, and I had in her presentation. And many of these, um, and I just wanted to note that many of these people that we're referring to will be participating in in future podcasts, and um, they're going to say things, um, you know, to enhance the things that they've already said and, and bring that conversation into. So I have a kind of a big question, and I wanted to know. How do we know what to do as researchers, members of REBs, and community members based on what we heard? Okay, Carolyn? I guess for me, I mean, this is a huge, huge question. And I think, I mean, this is something we, the three of us have often talked about, I think, a lot in, in, in various iterations. If I tie back to our last question, what, something that did sort of resonate, not, maybe resonate's not the right word, something that really stuck with me from the conversations were comments from participants around sort of having similar issues and experiences uh, for many years, you know, being well, long established scholars at this point, but recalling these same sort of conversations, recalling um, these same issues sort of popping up as graduate students and early and, you know, early in their scholarly careers. And, and so thinking about that for me, I, it really brings me to a, a point where I feel like I just, I don't know what I need to do. If I, reflecting on my role as the research ethics board chair in making sure that we were engaging in dialogue, um, that members of the board were learning, those were very important pieces for me, but I don't feel like it's enough personally. Um, and, you know, this is obviously my own personal opinion, um, I, I feel like, I mean, Parallel Pathways for me seems to make the most sense uh, in terms of what an ethics process looks like going forward. Um, you know, and maybe that's not the sort of, that's not what it looks like ultimately, but as a starting point, maybe that is what we need to do and then, and then build those bridges and sort of see what comes after. Uh, building the bridges as in... Between the pathways. Oh, I see. So that so that they're not totally isolated pathways. I see. Um, that there is something that is connecting the pathways, and then, you know, a sharing and a learning, and and then maybe maybe that is a way that the traditional REB might actually fundamentally change. But I, at this point, I'm I'm fairly pessimistic around whether or not we're able to get traditional REBs to make the changes that we really need to see to fully appreciate Indigenous cultural values and research and, and that broad relationality. All of those issues really challenge the, the policy that fundamentally guide what REB members are supposed to be doing in a lot of ways. So 
I, I, you know, the, the short answer is I, I don't know what, what you do. I think what we did, I think what we did was an important point. It was a very important point, like in, and I think in the history of, you know, establishing self-determination and sovereignty for indigenous communities globally who are already developing their own like research ethics boards. I think Dr. Susan Manitowabi was um, talking about uh, their nation's work and there was uh, work in the Caribbean that has also been discussed. I don't think enough um, indigenous peoples have gone down that route yet, but what we've done as um, people working within the academy is that we're having the conversation uh, to be able to move forward. However, um, sometimes like the needs like within the indigenous communities are so great that, you know, they want to see that research benefits like the community some way, somehow, more so than just like having the academic conversation of research ethics. However, that those ethical frameworks shape the research that's being conducted. And so, um, you know, I think that what we've done, Carolyn and Nisha, is, is very important and very significant. Um, Nisha, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, you know, maybe I'll, I'll say one thing and then I actually have a, a question for you, Josie, too. One of the things that felt important to me as, you know, a co-organizer, but then also just as an attendee of, of the conference is that it illuminated that things are already happening, right? These otherwise ways of being ethical in research, these otherwise ways of thinking about the role of research ethics boards vis-a-vis Indigenous nations um, and their, their own ethical protocols, this is already happening, right? And so I think that sometimes it can be daunting um, when it feels like everything everything has to change, right? Everything has to be shifted, right? So I often think about like my, my students in one of my courses and I, I pose this question about what would it look like to not live under capitalist relations, right? And people find this question so daunting until we realize that capitalism is a very, very young system, right? There, there are many more years of otherwise way, ways of organizing ourselves economically than that. And so I think to me, what feels important emerging from the conference is also work that I have to do in, in terms of sitting with everything that was brought forward in the conference and actually starting to methodically document, right? What, what is happening already that is actually already actualizing um, in some ways, this notion of parallel pathways, or we can describe it as uh, actualizing in some context, a treaty notion um, of research ethics. Um, so I, I kind of just wanted to pop in to make that intervention because it can feel so overwhelming um, to think that everything has to change. And then the risk of that, of course, is that it erases the fact that Indigenous nations or communities are already doing this work 
in vis-a-vis research ethics or community protocols, et cetera. So I think there's something about, for those of us who are non-Indigenous, there's something about, okay, now we need to slow down and we need to be actually observing how it's already happening in other contexts. So that that's one thing that that feels like important work for me coming out of the 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 symposium. But I guess the other huge piece to me, Josie, and you posing this question to us and is related to this notion of like non-Indigenous people litness, listening and witnessing and hearing is maybe you could also share what your experiences were um, that animated why we all ended up together, right? So your experiences in moving through the research ethics board process um, and where you saw those tensions, where you saw those blockages. And that also is illuminates, you know, where the possibilities for doing things otherwise would be. Yeah, we've been victims and survivors of um, many different aspects of colonialism on our bodies and our lands as Indigenous women. Uh, So what led to this research was um, having completed like a four-year term, plus my lived experience, a four-year term on um, my First Nation as counsellor for four years. And there was like horrible things that were happening um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, affecting affecting our nation. So when I came, when I finished my term and I came to Athabasca University, I was uh, still healing from that experience of, of servant leadership. And so I wanted to know, can we have um, healthy self-determination and sovereignty if we have not determined our sexual experiences because a lot of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, and the experiences of um, lifestyles have been affected by, you know, the invasion of sexual boundaries at different ages and stages. So um, it really it really bothered me, and I wanted to do answer this question using Indigenous research methodology. So I was um, I went through the process of the research ethics board process at AU, and of course. It's a very sensitive topic, and um, my sexual boundaries also had been invaded at various times in my life. And so this question was really important. And when we talk about Indigenous research methodology, and I want to just like leave that thought there and move into like Indigenous research methodology and think about the purpose of it. So during one of the panels on day two, Melody Morton, you know, Maya, referenced Lisa Burke Bearskin and um, said that if you are not transformed by research, you have not done it right. If done right, it will change you. All I can do is change myself. And she linked this to Lisa's words on transformation. So, Did my research change me? My research helped me to be able to talk about the unforgivable, forgiving the unforgivable. The research changed me in being able to connect from one heart to another heart. The research changed me in that it opened my world to connecting with um, you, Nisha, and Carolyn, and Myra, and 
also like the, the presenters and the people who supported our event in meaningful ways, technicians, graduate student, and uh, faculty as well. So all I can do as a Nehiausku, which is a Cree woman, is continue to advocate for self-determination and, and our own sovereignty. Because like us, our Mother Earth is being raped. Corporations are extracting resources from the land. And, and this was also spoken about in that same panel. So when we consider the effects of following the rules and the language of the Western institution at the REB level, we see how colonialism functions today. So, so how do we know that we've changed? And I'm going to reference their, um, the title of their presentation was on moral horizons and Dr. Cora Weber Pilwax building up the differences, talking about behaviors being the outcomes of morals and that how institutions uh, do not have morals, that people have morals. So then we have to look at, um, you know, those processes and those distinctions and ask, have those critical conversations because we are Inuak, Indigenous peoples, because it is our right to be able to determine our own Indigenous research methodology, whether it be beadworking, whether it be fishing, uh, and some of the examples that were pre present in our conversations. Because for too long, settler colonialism has looked down on us from a superior lens and has prevented us from, you know, fulfilling our prophecy that we as Indigenous peoples will help to guide the way for better research futures. How do we know that we have changed? How do we know that non-Indigenous researchers have changed from the research that they do with Indigenous peoples? So then, as we know that the sun rises and the sun sets, the moral horizon metaphor was very profound. And this is a question that I think that we need to, to move forward. Um, and I agree with Melody Morton-Ninomaya. How do we know that after conducting Indigenous research methodologies that people have been transformed? How can you honestly have that conversation with yourself from that ethical place and in wanting to engage in Indigenous research methodology? Have we been on one side of the riverbank for too long? Is there a canoe? Is there a bridge? I would just like to say that I think that that question is so integral. And it, again, it speaks to the contributions that so many people made in the, in the conference um, in the sense of inviting, um, asserting a really expansive understanding of ethics. And, I've been sitting with this this piece um, written by Dr. Eve Tuck that's called Biting the University That, that Feeds Us. Um, and in it, she talks about theories of change in research. And she, she talks about the way in which 
theories of change are implied in all of our research. And often in social science research, there's a theory of change that is about documenting damage. And here she's talking about the context of settler colonialism and, and this theory of change um, kind of imbued into much social science research that, that one needs to document damage in order to prove that indigenous people are in, in some sense worthy of, of change, right? Um, or worthy of, of you know, claims for justice. And so she really pushes back against this, this theory of damage and is asking scholars to reflect on their own research to see how they're perpetuating theories of change in their research that are causing harm. And so I've been sitting with, you know, her her paper for a very long time and in it she asks some really important makes some really important provocations in terms of of questioning ourselves and and i add this one that you've just raised um, to that list that i will sit with because it is so contrary right to western notions of research and quote unquote objectivity quote unquote bias right that researchers remain unaffected, right? Unimpacted, unimplicated in their research. And this is such an important invitation and invocation that that is actually integral to research, that there is some kind of, of honor, to use some of the words of some of our, our, our presenters, some kinds of honor or moral impetus, of course, ethical impetus, that to engage in work or research that is transformative necessarily has to also have an impact, not just for you know the people that you're collaborating with, but also for yourself as a researcher that will shift how you carry on with your work in the next iteration. So just wanting to pause there to say that it, it's such a, a profound question because it now invites like a different level of thinking in terms of these questions around what are the theories of change that are animating our research, and it 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 requires a different level of ethical engagement. The one pause that I will say there, um, just as a non-Indigenous person, is that there is often a risk, I think, um, in some of these these exercises that um, non-Indigenous people will treat change as part of their personal journey. And in that sense, I, I, I'm speaking about a way in which there can be this settler-centric understanding of change, that it has to be meaningful for the settler, for it to be worthy of reflection. So I guess I, I say, you know, with one hand, I, I love this invitation, and it's one that I'm going to be thinking about in my own work. But there's also this other pause that I have in terms of how sometimes these invitations get appropriated um, in ways that, again, reinforce this logic that is one that is very colonial, that centers settlers' needs, um, that settlers, that center kind of settlers' affective responses as opposed to a relational understanding, which all of our presenters have really invited us to, to think about and that that you always invite us to think about Josie as well. So I just wanted to pop in with that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I'll be thinking about that too. 
I'd like to move on to um, the third question, if that's okay. Um, if we look at Indigenous research and Indigenous research methodologies, what do you think um, we will see 20 years from now? I'll start. I, I think, I don't know what we're going to see. I can tell you what I hope we might see. And what I, what I would really hope for is whether or not we have established parallel pathways, uh, you know, um, with, with sort of those connectors, those bridges, those canoes to, to allow that dialogue, or if we maintain the, the traditional U university REB, I would like for ethics policy and REBs themselves to embrace this more expansive understanding of what it means to be ethical. I think it is at this point, uh, they have not been able to effectively do this. Now, we could probably talk a lot about what that looks like in practical terms. And, and I'm sure that could be probably, you know, a challenging sort of thing to sort of put into practice, depending on what an REB um, looks like and is, you know, who the members are and, and, and that sort of thing. But I would like to see this, this more expansive understanding um, embraced. I really would, you know, for all research, for all research, I think having REB members understand Indigenous research methodologies and research, the importance of cultural values in this, in the work, um, you know, I, I would like to see that being the standard, that that is just, that is, that is there in the REB. It, it's never a question as to whether or not that REB gets it. Anisha, what do you, what, what would you, what do you think we're going to um, see in the next 20 years if we look at Indigenous research and Indigenous research methodologies? This feels like a hard question. I mean, it, it feels like a hard question, I guess, as a non-Indigenous person to extrapolate outwards about Indigenous research or IR Indigenous research methodologies. And so I, I, I guess I think about what do I imagine that the institutional context would be, right? Which is the one that I am implicated in. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I have worries, I'll be honest. I think I have worries in the sense that the institution, research ethics and how it governs research at, at the university can't be extricated from the structural context in which they're located, right? And so, so there's a part of me that says I am worried in the sense that we see that our institutions, that post-secondary institutions are under attack. Right, we know this. Um, so there is a big risk to the university as a public institution, and that's going to have consequences for how we conduct our research. So I say that that note of skeptic skepticism, but I I also say that the notion of parallel pathways. And the notion of witnessing that other ways, otherwise ways of conducting research are already happening is the, the hope, right? In the sense that, that it is already happening, that in anything that has to do with any kind of orientation towards um, 
just visions for a future world or a present world. We can never locate that in, in the institution, right? The institution is not here for that. That's not what post-secondary spaces are meant to do, right? That, that we will not find that at the university. So I think that's where my hope with respect to parallel pathways and to um, respecting ongoing Indigenous sovereignties and self-determination offers a pathway for us all in the sense that we can't always be working in reference to institutions that cause harm or institutions that are rooted in, in structures of oppression. So I guess I, I hold both of those things simultaneously, right? That even in the context of my own positionality and the struggles that I fight in terms of anti-racism or misogyny, all of those things, I'm not going to find salvation in the institution. I will find that in relationships, in community. I will find that elsewhere. So I think I have a measured response to what the institution can offer us with respect to research ethics, but I have an infinitely expansive understanding of how we, not in reference to the institution, can do good work or can do just work or can do decolonial work or can live lives that, that are working against the harm that our institutions are perpetuating. That's powerful. And that's really insightful. And, you know, I think um, if COVID had taught us anything, and I'm re referencing like Lisa, Lisa Burke Bearskin, it is that we need to care for our communities. We need to care for our peoples. And um, I think there are many people that share that same skepticism about like the universities as well and questioning whether or not they'll go and work for their indigenous communities or whether, um, you know, they'll go um, and, and maybe, maybe they're going to develop like their own like research ethics boards processes. I don't know. We'll see, but I think, um, Time tells all. And I know that um, I share this concern with you too, Nisha, about the times ahead, but uh, see what happens. Go ahead. I will say, I will say, you know, I, I, I articulate that skepticism, but I also say that I, it's not that I will abandon this institution, right? I think that this is our space to claim, right? Um, these are long processes that maybe are never fully resolved, right? But, you know, I, I, I say that also noting that there is some, there's a reason why we are here. There's a reason why we've decided to participate in this conversation. There is something that we see in these spaces that enables us to, to have these conversations. But I also see the limits in that it will not all be held within any institution, you know, post-secondary or otherwise. Yeah, we'll become the Athabasca School, the Athabasca School of um, Indigenous Research Methodology and Ethics. Anyway, I wanted to thank you. Thank you for your time today. And um, if you have any uh, any thoughts or any contribute, anything that you want to contribute, like in terms of the work that you're currently doing, please do that now. I just wanted to thank you, Josie, for having me today. It was great to be a part of this conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And I'll also say thank you, Josie. I mean, you invited us so many years ago now to, to start this conversation. You know, we were like 
I think it was the day after the pandemic was declared and we again bumped elbows <laughs> right in that coffee shop so so thank you for that it's relational we've developed that relationality and we've taken our time with the process and um, i think we have you know we've developed you know like i say i'm going to go back to the athabasca school of indigenous research methodology and ethics yes and tell us about your podcast nisha well, I will I will invite those listening to this podcast to also listen to um, a podcast that I'm a producer of alongside Wayne Chu, and that's hosted by Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and that's Academic Aunties. It's a podcast that's specifically really meant to support the experiences of first-gen racialized scholars who are navigating the academy. So please do check us out. Definitely. Thank you. You've been listening to Kick Up Iksquiwin, why are cultural values so important to Indigenous peoples involved in research with Indigenous peoples? Hi, hi. That's good.